Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. It's unlikely today that if you were to question a scientist about their research, that they would cite magic as one of their avenues of study. To one scientific pioneer, magic was just a part of his arsenal of tools for questioning and understanding anything and everything. So much so that he even sought the advice of angels to aid him in his quest to understand how the universe worked, even delving into demonology. As a royal advisor and metaphysicist, the world was an unending portal of unexplored possibility, but some things should be left undiscovered, especially when they lead you not only toward the path of spiritual enlightenment, but also toward the occult, danger, madness, and the very real threat of execution. This time on Macabre London, we uncover the story of John Dee and his associate, Edward Kelly. London, in the 1500s, was a hotbed of scientific discovery and exploration was all the rage. For anyone who was even mildly educated, the world was a blank slate and was there to be explored. In the early 16th century alone, the musket had been invented, which revolutionised warfare. Da Vinci had painted the Mona Lisa, Michelangelo had painted the Sistine Chapel, and philosophy was all the rage, with Machiavelli and Erasmus having put forward theories on politics and humanism, which were the antithesis of each other. All in all, the Renaissance was the fetal stage of the modern world as we know it today. On the 15th of July, 1527, the world was about to receive one of its most inquisitive minds of the 16th century. Born near the Tower of London to Father Roland and Mother Joanna, John Dee was an only child. His father Roland was said to be descended from the 9th century King of the Britons, Rodri the Great, something he was very proud of and which helped him to further his own career. John's father was a successful mercer, trading in silks and linens, but he was also the royal tailor to King Henry VIII. His mother Joanna owned property in West London, which would have been fairly profitable for the family, meaning that John didn't grow up poor. His education was a reflection of this, and he was packed off to study at an early age at Chelmsford Grammar School and later St John's College in Cambridge. 
For most children in medieval times, they would have had no education at all. Those that were poor may have been lucky to attend a church school, but for most children, they received no formal education. John didn't take his education for granted and was studious to the point of exhaustion, often studying 18 hours a day. His parents had impressed upon him the importance of his schooling, but he was also enthralled by learning and education. He studied the standard topics of the day, philosophy, grammar and rhetorical studies, taking from the Latin and Greek classics, which made him fluent in both languages. He also put great effort into learning from the Bible and was well-schooled in religion. His studious nature paid off, and at the age of just 20, he was appointed a founding fellow of the Trinity College in Cambridge, which just so happened to be next door to St John's. He began teaching Greek, but found that after a short while, he wanted to expand on his knowledge and to learn from different cultures and scholars. The attitude towards science in England was not as forward-thinking as it was on the continent, and so John took his learning into his own hands. In the pursuit of the exciting minds of Europe, he travelled to the Netherlands, where he picked up a love of mathematics, learning from influential and learned men about maps, maths and measurements. Whilst in Brussels, he became great friends with Gerardus Mercator, an esteemed cartographer, and whilst under his tutelage, he developed a penchant towards an unrelenting pursuit of knowledge. John wrote in his diary that he was hardly ever away from Mercator, spending three whole years working with him, with only a few days break in that whole period. The pair explored different theories at length about the universe and worked hard on developing navigational instruments, which would have helped others traverse the globe, and John even wrote a few manuscripts on astrology during his time there. After a short while, his hard work was noticed by people back in England, and he was given approval by Sir William Cecil, who was an advisor to the Duke of Northumberland. The Duke was acting on the Regency Council at the time as a result of King Edward VI being only nine years old when he was crowned. Edward, who ascended to the throne after the death of his father, Henry VIII, was only allowed to rule through the council due to his age. This worked in Dee's favour as his name was put forward to the young king by the Duke to receive a pension, which acted as a form of sponsorship from the king so he could further his studies. In the meantime, Dee had returned to England and began working as the rector of the tiny town of Upton-upon-Severn in Worcestershire, but after a year he was offered a readership position at Oxford University, which would have opened an avenue for him to become a professor. However, John wasn't keen to take the position, as he didn't agree with the lack of science being taught there, so he turned the job offer down, perhaps hoping that King Edward would bring him into his court and make him an advisor. John's hopes were dashed, though, when the position didn't materialise, but he was granted the pension by the king, and as such, Dee used these funds into exploring any avenue of discovery he could. He wanted to prove that with a little investment, he could discover something beneficial for England. He picked up in his father's footsteps, and through a patrimony system, joined the worshipful company of Mercers, which by this time had now evolved into a charitable company. The Mercers generally helped to oversee the city and its movements, and this gave John many powerful connections in high places, and increased his standing within London in general. With his cash advance, John began studying anything and everything to do with maths, astronomy, astrology, alchemy, geography, cartography, magic and physics, amongst other topics. He also moonlighted as a maths tutor, which topped up his pension, giving him extra funds to invest in his first love, books. Dee amassed so many books that when travelling, he often used to take a minimum of 80 along with him. Bearing in mind most books in the 1500s weren't the usual light paperbacks we've come to know today. These large, bulky, leather-bound tomes would have required serious shifting and a few servants to help carry them from country to country. 
Amassing a considerable collection, he began storing these at his mother's house in Mortlake and began spending more and more time there reading. John was a true Renaissance man and didn't limit himself to what topics he studied. However, he sought more enjoyment from physics than most other things, and just as he was really getting settled into his studies, the metaphorical boat was about to be rocked. King Edward had passed away, and with that, his pension would potentially be stopped. John's friend and King's Court member, the Duke of Northumberland, had been exacting a plan to get his daughter-in-law onto the throne. Edward had become ill, and over a period of a few months, had rapidly gone downhill, and then passed away. His death was from suspected tuberculosis, that coincidentally looked a lot like poisoning. With the king now dead, the duke thought the path was clear for his family to take the throne. If his daughter-in-law could be endorsed highly enough by the public, she would be crowned the first Queen of England. However, the plan fell flat on its face when she didn't even make it to her coronation. Support for her was scant, and the general public saw straight through Northumberland's plan for domination by proxy, and the family went into hiding inside the Tower of London. Lady Jane Grey reigned for a massively underwhelming nine-day period before being ejected from her throne by Edward's older half-sister, Mary. Before his death, and after his health started to become questionable, King Edward had been advised that Mary shouldn't be crowned queen due to her being Catholic, thus undoing the Protestant reform that his father had spearheaded. King Edward agreed that this would cause huge upset in the mainly Protestant population, and more importantly, put his wishes in writing to be exacted upon should he happen to die. After all, Mary was far from perfect in his eyes, not just because she was Catholic, but he also didn't believe the next person on the throne should be female. But with the Duke in his ear, he agreed to letting Jane take his place, should he just so happen to die in an untimely manner. The Duke advised the King that Jane was Protestant and had also just married, so it wouldn't be long before she would be pregnant with hopefully a son. That hypothetical son could then continue in the same manner King Edward had, with the Regency Council continuing to make all the decisions on his behalf. He neglected to say that this way he could maintain his position on the court where he'd effectively been acting as king. Understandably, tricking a child into signing away the throne wasn't that difficult, and the Duke got his way. Mary was understandably furious when Jane usurped her position, and when the Duke heard of her displeasure with him, he tried to form an army which would capture Mary, but he was too late. Mary had already begun forming an army of her own, and she surprisingly received masses of support from the general public despite being Catholic. After all, the Reformation to Protestantism had only occurred 19 years earlier as a result of Mary's father wanting to divorce her mother, Catherine of Aragon. So this meant that there were still plenty of Catholics in hiding who came out to support her. Princess Elizabeth supported her half-sister, and when Mary arrived in London, she rode alongside her in a demonstration of solidarity between them, despite them not always having the best relationship. Once Mary had claimed her rightful place on the throne, becoming the first official Queen of England, she originally, as an act of grace, wanted to pardon all those involved in the nine-day reign. But due to the potential threat of Jane trying to regain the throne, something which she'd made very clear she wouldn't even think to try, Mary had no other option than to have the Duke, Jane and her husband all beheaded to assert her dominance and to send a message that she wouldn't put up with any further challenge to her position as Queen. With Dee's supporters now all dead, this meant his endorsement ended and his funds were stopped. In an attempt to see what the future had in store for him, 
Dee drew up horoscopes for both Mary and Elizabeth. Dee predicted that the future looked bright for Elizabeth, but for Mary, things were looking incredibly bleak. By this time, Elizabeth was sequestered to Oxfordshire due to her being a potential threat to Mary's reign. And once word got back to the Queen's court that Dee had been drawing up prophetic star charts for them both, he found himself behind bars on account of calculating against the Queen. This, amongst other rumblings of him practising sorcery, led to an escalated accusation of treason, and he was put on trial in Westminster's Star Chamber Court. The Church was highly suspicious of any scientific advancements that questioned their beliefs, and to them, John looked as if he was trying to use his magic for his own gain. Anyone who could solve a simple maths problem was thought to be an incredible sorcerer, and John was miles beyond that. There had even been rumours about him being a magician ever since his days at Trinity College, when he produced spellbounding stage effects for a production of a play by Aristophanes. And now, by carrying out royal astrology, he was in danger of being executed for witchcraft. Dee luckily was found not guilty, but the stress of it all had a profound effect on him, and as a religious man himself, he was questioning his own studies. John was perturbed that those around him may discredit his work if he was seen as a simple magician, and having seen what had been happening to anyone who challenged the church, he was right to be wary. During this time, Mary's court had begun burning religious dissenters at the stake, and eventually she racked up 300 fiery executions during her reign. Dee was concerned that if he was seen to be a mad magus, then he too would also be set alight. When he was in prison awaiting trial, John shared a cell with a dissenter who was taken and burned at the stake, demonstrating to Dee that he was in grave danger should he be found guilty. This would have given him plenty to think about, and luckily, due to his intelligence, he presented a decent case against his accusers, which allowed him to be released without charge. The church wanted to keep a close eye on John, and after his trial, he was put under the watchful eye of Bishop Bonner and subjected to religious examination. Now spending a lot of time together, in a turn of events, Bonner and Dee became good friends. Bonner could see that Dee was just a curious man, but he was also extremely literal, and this led to him being perceived as secretive and mysterious, when in fact, there wasn't actually much he was hiding at all. After all, he had been writing about his studies for a while, but not many people had read his work, so it was all there in print, should anyone be interested. Bonner decided Dee wasn't much of a threat, and he was allowed to continue his work. After Queen Mary died during the flu epidemic, the throne was handed over to Elizabeth. To make sure the stars were aligned for her reign to go well, Elizabeth, who was big into magic, asked John to read her horoscope so she could know what day would be fortuitous for her to be crowned. Elizabeth put all her trust into John to deliver the most auspicious date, as it was believed that anyone who had the power to align the stars also had the power to change their course and to meddle with another's fate. Dee delivered a coronation date of the 15th of January, 1559, but on the day of the coronation, it was bitterly cold and gloomy, which put his skills into question, and this would create the basis for their ongoing working relationship. John assisted Elizabeth throughout her reign, but he was never actually given an official role within her court. Instead, he was called upon when needed, but this didn't stop him from trying to secure a more permanent role. However, he never managed to secure a long-term position. John had a tendency to give Elizabeth advice when it was not asked for, and he generally tried to interfere when he was not requested to do so, 
Again, this may have been due to his literal nature and his not-so-fantastic interpersonal skills. Despite his frequent mansplaining, Elizabeth did have a fondness for John, and the feeling was mutual. John was said to have romantic feelings for Elizabeth, as did most men that worked for her, and she was clever in using these infatuations to her advantage to get exactly what she wanted. Elizabeth had her sights set on sending her courtiers to explore the wider world, and as such, she used John's skills in cartography to help plan these voyages of discovery. As a result of his studies under Mercator, John made navigational instruments for the voyages, and he even coined the term British Empire when explaining what this great age of discovery would achieve. As the work for Elizabeth was more freelance than regular income, John had to have other avenues of revenue to support himself. He began dabbling in writing more, but as he was not particularly skilled in seeing projects through to completion, many of his ideas were halted early on, or remained as unfinished manuscripts. However, he did manage to eventually finish a few books and go on to publish them. John's books don't hold much gravitas today, but they do tell us about the development of science during the Tudor period, and just how much we were yet to learn over the subsequent years. One of his theories was that the sun, stars and planets had a profound effect on the human body, something which in later years would be found to be true through the absorption of vitamin D, so he wasn't far off, but for the most part, with his theories, there were many swings and also many misses. In another book, the Monus Hieroglyphica, John put forward the idea that alchemy and all human knowledge were contained within one symbol, which he'd drawn up of the same name. The symbol, which looks like a horned devil emoji sat upon a cross with the legs, was said by Dee to be a more abstract symbol of how the cosmos was connected, as it contained all the elements along with the sun and the moon. John's book was more confusing than enlightening, and as such, the true meaning behind the hieroglyph is still uncertain to this day, but to him, it was magical and powerful. As John delved deeper and deeper into his studies, he could sense there was something more which he still wasn't quite reaching. He understood maths and science, but he struggled to draw any conclusions as to what the mysterious forces were that governed the universe, and with this, he began to reach further into pursuing the dark arts of the occult. By this time, John had moved out to his now-deceased mother's property in Mortlake near Richmond, which nowadays has been absorbed into southwest London, but back in the day would have been a leafy idyll. And it also just so happened that Queen Elizabeth lived nearby in Richmond Palace, a short distance from his home. This way, John was nearby enough to be on call for any royal business, but he could also focus on his own writing and research. In John's personal life, he'd gone through a rather tumultuous few years. He'd married his first wife Catherine when he was 38, and they were together for nine years before she passed away. He then remarried just a year later, but his second wife passed away after only a year of marriage. At his home, he amassed even more books, and his dream of creating a substantial library for other scholars to borrow books from was realised. He'd pitched the idea of a public library to Queen Mary before she died, but due to his unpopularity with the Queen and the low literacy rate at the time, she dismissed the idea. John also set up three laboratories in his home, which allowed him to practice his illegal alchemy with others. His home became a mixing pot of scholars, students and those seeking knowledge. This meant that Dee was now meeting with some of the most exciting emerging minds in science, and his reputation as a man of science was growing even more. 
During this time, John also embarked on a rather scandalous personal mission. He married Jane Fromond, who at 23 years old was 28 years younger than him. Jane was lady-in-waiting to the Countess of Lincoln, who happened to be part of Queen Elizabeth's court, and this is how she and John met. Jane didn't escape John's curious mind, and she also endured experiments carried out upon her own body and their relationship. In order to better understand reproduction, the pair produced eight children, and when Jane suffered a miscarriage, she was inspected by her husband, and all the details were recorded. He tracked Jane's menstrual cycles, he noted down any and all arguments they had, and the minutiae of her day-to-day life. This record of Jane's life via Dee's diaries has since become very useful in giving people an idea of what it was like to be a middle-class Elizabethan woman, something which at the time wouldn't have been deemed important enough to document. But again, thanks to Dee's literal nature and penchant for recording even banal detail, this has survived to give a good overview of the period, if you'll pardon the pun. Alongside tending to four children at the time, Jane also ran the bustling Mortlake house. She organised Dee's appointments and managed the servants, making sure everything ran without fault and with minimal disruption to John's work, something which he was very grateful for, as this allowed him to commit himself fully to his research. In an attempt to understand the mystical nature of the universe, John ventured further down the path of working out how to communicate with entities. Everyone at that time put their faith in God as the explanation for how the world worked. There was a strong belief in higher powers, as they were yet to understand the forces which they couldn't see, such as gravity and electromagnetism, and John was no different. He had a strong religious belief, and he thought that if he could commune with God, he could discover how the world worked. John had been told that people were doing something called scrying, where they stared into a crystal ball to call upon spirits. But when he tried, he found he couldn't conjure up a decent conversation. Again, as a very literal man, he was asking for voices or visions to appear to him as others had said they'd appeared to them, but he lacked the ability to summon them. After several attempts at communing with the big man and his friends, he came up short, so instead he employed people to scry on his behalf. John believed that if he could communicate with the angels through a conduit, then he would be able to obtain knowledge directly from God himself, and who better to learn from when it came to understanding the universe? This branch of study saw Dee work with several different scryers that all said they held the gift of being able to communicate with angels, but the experiments never quite tapped into the unbroken line of communication Dee was looking for. He even convinced his son Arthur to give it a go, but like his father, he wasn't particularly skilled. As if by magic, one day a man by the name of Edward Kelly arrived at Dee's library and introduced himself to John. 29-year-old Kelly had a reputation as a powerful dark magician who was very skilled in scrying. He'd been accused but not convicted of digging up a corpse and bringing it back to life through necromancy. Kelly also had a history of fraud, unbeknown to John, Edward had previously been convicted of counterfeiting and forgery, and as a result, he'd had his ears cut off to demonstrate his devious ways to others to stop him from being fraudulent again. When Kelly arrived at Mortlake, he was wearing a cap to cover his lack of ears. John was intrigued at what Kelly could do, and it wasn't long before he was taking him to the realms of dark magic that he didn't think were possible. Kelly showed John how to speak with spirits and all sorts of entities that lived beyond the veil. 
he demonstrated in his first session just how talented he was. He summoned the Archangel Uriel, who gave a prophetic message to John that Kelly was the real deal and that the two of them should work together from that point onwards. And so began years of employment for Kelly. Edward moved his family into Mortlake under the pretense that if he was there on a permanent basis, then the spirit summoning could happen whenever John wanted it to. It also happened to be free bed and board for the family, which would have been very handy indeed. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. To begin any communication session, John and Edward would enact elaborate ritual practices to cross over into the spirit world. They would start by creating an altar to attract the angels. This would contain magical equipment such as gems, talismans, magical symbols and the all-important Monus Hieroglyphica, along with candles so the spirits had a light to head towards. The main communication equipment would also be placed upon a table ready for use a polished piece of black obsidian, which was used as a mirror, and a small crystal ball. Once everything was in place, they would sit quietly in the dark, praying for hours on end, in the hope that the intention would act as a spiritual beacon for the angels. Edward, who seemed to have a direct line to the spirits, would act as a conduit and spew forth the messages he was being given from the angels. John would ask them questions about the future, in the hope that if it came true, he would be able to prove the angel's existence. He was, however, very careful in his dealings with the angels, as he felt that he may actually be communing with demons, as the messages he would receive were rather terrifying, and who was to say he wasn't being tricked by the devil instead of communing with God? By speaking with whatever spirits these were, John knew that what he was doing was dangerous, as he could potentially be meddling with the course of humanity. Feeling he was making headway and they tapped into something much bigger and darker than they ever expected, Dee and Kelly knew that they had to go deeper into the realm of the occult. They practiced scrying sessions and rituals almost daily and were indefatigable in their research. Kelly was starting to see more and more prophetic visions and began communing with deities and entities which neither of them had ever heard of before. The Angelic Conversations experiment saw them speak with over 70 different spirits, the range of which was unfathomable. Human-like spirits appeared, and even gods and monsters popped in to say hi inside the crystal ball. Amongst the standard angels, there was a giant deity who had sons for eyes, and a regular visitor was a young maid who went by the name Medimi. There were also some recognisable names that dropped by too. The Archangel Gabriel was a regular visitor, as was Uriel. The angels which appeared to Kelly began talking in an unknown language, and Kelly was told by them it was called Enochian. Dee continued searching further as to what this ancient language was, 
and was told by the angels that before the fall of man, when the first two humans transitioned from innocent obedience to guilty disobedience, this holy language was wiped out. With sin came the eradication of the mother tongue of God. The language that Kelly spoke was fully formed. It had an alphabet, grammar and semantics. If this was made up, it would have taken years to master and then deliver to Dee via the cryptic messages. So wherever it came from was only explainable by the angelic prophecy in which it was delivered. Having now discovered the ancient language, John believed that if he could master it, he could gain control over the material world, as he would be able to communicate freely with the angels. In 1583, a visit was made to Mortlake by Count Lasky, a Polish nobleman and alchemist who was interested in seeing Dee's work. John was flattered by Lasky's interest, and even allowed him to observe a scrying session, which no one had been allowed to do before. Lasky was impressed with what he saw, and tried to impress upon Dee how important it was that he and Kelly come with him back to Poland so they could work together. Poland, and the nearby Prague, was a hotbed of alchemical activity, and Lasky knew if he could just get the pair of them back there, he'd be able to make a bit of money. He also offered to fund their research and to make sure that they had everything that they needed to live comfortably. Kelly was quite keen on the idea of going abroad to further his alchemy studies, and when they consulted the angels, they unsurprisingly agreed with the idea. Medimi spoke through Kelly during the scrying session, telling John that he was soon going to be under investigation by Queen Elizabeth's court, and that he should be alert. Having survived a trial once under Mary's reign, he didn't want to risk his life again. Also, as John had been unable to seek patronage from anyone in Britain, it seemed wise to leave and seek the support of Lasky. Edward and John packed up not only them, but also their respective families, and headed off to Poland. To avoid rousing suspicion and potentially being followed, they left from Mortlake at midnight during a storm and fled in horse-drawn carriages bound for a boat in Gravesend in Kent. Once they'd arrived in Poland, after six months of travelling they quickly found out that Count Lasky wasn't all he made out to be. He wasn't very well liked and wasn't as high up in the court as he'd said he was. The money he'd also promised didn't materialise. This meant that the pair were now on their own in a different country with no income. In a bid to secure patronage, Dee presented his books to many across Europe but kept his mystical workings under wraps so as to again avoid being found out as a witch. However, where there's smoke, there's fire, and it wasn't long before Kelly and Dee were both under investigation on necromancy charges by the church. Again, John managed to talk their way out of the accusations against both him and Edward, but by this time things were becoming tense between them, and the cracks in their relationship were starting to show. John was annoyed at how Edward handled himself during the interrogation by the church, and where Dee was calm and rational, Kelly had shown his temper and denounced the Catholic Church, saying that the priests were all corrupt. This nearly had them both defenestrated from a church window, a particularly popular form of execution in Prague at the time. By this time, Kelly was practising more alchemy and making some good connections across Europe, and that was where his real interests lay. After all, if he could crack turning metal into gold, he would be rich forever. During the scrying sessions, the angels became increasingly forthcoming with their messages via Kelly. They told John that he must confront the Holy Roman Emperor, Rudolf II, in Prague. Rudolf was a huge supporter of alchemy, and during this time he'd been dismissing Dee and Kelly for being charlatans and frauds, which may just have been what made the angels angry at him. 
After all, if John could get the Emperor on side, then they would have patronage to continue their alchemy experiments. The meeting took place at Prague Castle, where John put his life on the line and told Rudolph that he was an evil man and that if he didn't listen to the messages from the angels, he would be punished by God and suffer a hideous end. If he did behave himself and begin ruling with the advice from the angels, then he'd live out a long and prosperous reign. Whilst making his decision as to whether he should instantly incarcerate John or have him defenestrated, Rudolf was all ears as to what the angels had to say next. They instantly piped up via John to mention that Edward happened to have a bag of the Philosopher's Stone, and this hugely diverted the conversation from imminent death to intrigue. Before their European travels, Edward said he'd encountered a spiritual creature on a trip to Northwick Hill in Gloucestershire, and they had given him a bag of the Philosopher's Stone, a mysterious substance which was said to be the integral part of transforming base metals into gold and silver. It was also said to be the elixir of life if a pinch of it was dissolved in wine and then consumed. This little bag of powder may have also been the reason why Edward wanted to get to mainland Europe quickly, as if he could make this discovery in the land of alchemy, he would be hailed as a god amongst men and be gifted with anything his heart desired. However, it didn't take much to upset Rudolf again, and it wasn't long before the families were fleeing Prague. They found sanctuary at Rosenborg Castle in Copenhagen. It was here that Kelly told Dee he'd finally cracked turning metal into gold. With this major discovery, John knew he only had a short amount of time before Kelly would leave him in search of alchemical fortunes. By this time, the scrying sessions were becoming more and more taxing upon Kelly. The visitations were becoming demonic, and what were once angels in the crystal ball were becoming hideous creatures from hell. His body was now displaying welts, and he suffered from fatigue, not to mention his mental health was taking a battering as a result of the constant drain on his faculties. John was insistent that Edward continued with their research, and after one particularly long night of horrific and terrifying conversation with the entities, Medimi the maid spirit appeared naked inside the crystal ball and put forward an outrageous idea to both the men. She said they must become equal and to share everything, and this meant absolutely everything, including their wives. The men asked her to clarify if this was carnal or spiritual, and Medimi answered carnal. Jane and Joanna were understandably not too happy about this, and John also objected. From a practical standpoint, John was in his 60s, making him almost 30 years older than everyone involved. When Jane and Joanna heard the news, they both cried, but eventually, in the name of science, they relented, even though nobody involved seemed particularly keen on the idea. Jane also despised Edward and couldn't bear to be around him, which would have made the whole ordeal ten times worse. However, in order to advance further, everyone agreed, and a contract was written up to make things official. Nine months later, Jane gave birth to a son, who they named Theodore, as it was highly suspected that his father was Edward. As things were heating up in Europe, and the likelihood of the pair being incarcerated or worse was looming ever closer, Dee decided it was time for him and his family to head back to Mortlake. Kelly had become increasingly bored by the scrying sessions, and after the wife swapping, everyone was rather disillusioned and frightened as to what the angels may suggest next, so the angelic conversations were ended. In the meantime, with Kelly now free to work on his alchemy, Emperor Rudolf came knocking and asked him to work for him full-time. 
Due to his experiments in Rosenborg Castle, Kelly was now a hot commodity in the alchemy world, and in order to keep him on side, and so he wouldn't flee back to England and give them his secrets, Kelly was finally given the rewards he'd so desired. He was given a castle to work in, and Rudolf worked with him for a little while. He was also made a baron, and given everything he needed to create gold, and he was successful in doing so, much to the Emperor's delight. Back in Mortlake, Jane's brother was meant to be looking after the library, but when the family returned home, his books had been stolen and his house ransacked. This was said to be as a result of Queen Elizabeth's court investigating the property after they'd found out about Dee making gold in Copenhagen and wanting to discover the secret themselves. Whilst this was somewhat true, what was more likely was that Jane's brother had thought that the family wouldn't be returning to Mortlake and instead decided to sell the sought-after books. Seeking support from Queen Elizabeth in helping to return Kelly to England, John proposed that if Edward could now produce gold, then Britain was set to be made rich as a result. The Queen decided that there may be some truth to his claims, and that it was best to keep John on side, just in case there came a time when she needed him. She made him warden of Christ College in Manchester, and the whole family moved to the northwest. John didn't hold much interest in his new role, as it was far from the excitement of scientific research, and even when presented with the case of seven demonically possessed children to investigate, he was less than enthusiastic and skipped over the job. Back in Prague, Kelly's magic gold mine had dried up. He'd not been able to produce gold in the quantities that Rudolf had imagined, and as a result, he was stripped of his title and castle and thrown in prison for four years. He was released for a short while on a pardon, but it wasn't long before Rudolf had him put back behind bars. Edward decided he didn't want to spend the rest of his life in prison, or worse, be executed, so he decided to escape. However, he was unsuccessful in making his way out of the castle dungeons, and fell, causing him horrific injuries, which he died of a few days later, proving that the Philosopher's Stone apparently doesn't protect you from accidental death. Queen Elizabeth passed away in 1603, but John kept his job in Manchester, despite his disinterest. It was a paycheck, and by this time, at his senior age, he wouldn't be able to gain any other employment. In 1604, his wife Jane contracted the plague and passed away soon after. Three of John's children also succumbed to the disease. At least, that's what is thought, as there is no mention of them after this time, and John had stopped keeping a diary by then. By this time, there were only three of Jane and John's eight children left, as the others had perished during their time in Europe. After Jane and the children's death, his daughter Catherine took her father back to Mortlake, where he spent the last four years of his life, before he passed away at the age of 81. Somehow Dee managed to outlive all of his oppressors, despite the many attempts on his life throughout the years. John was now poor as his money had dried up, so he wasn't afforded a grandiose funeral, and it's not known if he was even given a headstone, as there is no parish record of his burial. He is thought to have been buried in the Anglican churchyard in the town, but there is also speculation that he may have been buried elsewhere, as he has two death dates recorded, one in 1608 and one in 1609. After his death, John's diaries were made public. This allowed writers like Shakespeare and Faustus to have a greater insight into the late great man, and both of them based characters around his and Kelly's exploits. Even nowadays, Dee and Kelly crop up in pop culture quite regularly, and several books have used them as central historical fiction characters. John is even mentioned by H.P. Lovecraft as being the original translator for the Necronomicon. 
He even has a whole opera written about him by Damon Albarn, the lead singer from Blur, proving that the overarching intrigue into his magical exploits hasn't dwindled. If anything, it's stronger than ever. Dee's incessant curiosity and literal nature allowed him to create great leaps forward in science. Sometimes those leaps were highly misjudged, and he didn't land them, but leaps they were. Nonetheless, his curiosity explored the realms of religious science, and he bravely delved into the occult, which was an incredibly dangerous and life-threatening practice. Even discounting the occult practices which usually overshadow John's importance as a historical figure, without Dee, the British Empire wouldn't have happened, and without his and Kelly's failed alchemical experiments, there could well be a chance we'd still be trying to whittle gold from lead. Even though there were many terrible atrocities as a result of the Empire, it did help to form a more connected world, and in turn, John Dee shaped the way every single one of us lives today. And that's something I think he'd be very proud of. you enjoyed that episode i just wanted to let you know that this episode was so hard to research i've only very mildly scratched the surface of this topic so if there's anything that i've missed out then do feel free to let me know if you're watching on youtube then pop it in the comment box below if you're listening to the podcast then pop on my social media and let me know i know there's loads of people that are like real big fans of d so i don't want to undervalue anything he did so do feel free to just let me know if there's anything that i've missed out I'll also pop some links to some further reading in the description as well. So if you do want to learn a bit more, then there's links in the show notes. Just wanted to say a big thank you as well to everyone that's donated via the Acast supporter thing that they play you at the beginning of the episodes if you're listening to the podcast. And thank you so much if you've done that. It really does mean the world. If you have given one of those one-off donations and you wanted to make that a bit more regular, then do pop over to my Patreon page. Over on Patreon, there's all sorts of different bits and bobs that you can get involved in. I've been putting up some posts of things that I've been enjoying during lockdown as well. So now we're getting towards Christmas as well. Um, I'm going to pop up my Amazon wishlist again. The Amazon wishlist is always sort of lurking, but last year, quite a few of you bought me books for Christmas from my wishlist, which was really nice of you. So if anybody would like to do that again this year, then the link's there. Obviously, none of this is like you don't have to do anything just you watching is enough um but if you did want to give something back to the show then that's the way to support us so the links are all in the description i'll pop those there for you if you wanted to buy a t-shirt you get 50 percent off if you're a patron so um those t-shirts are 10 pounds instead of 20 pounds so you can just sign up for the month um for like even a dollar and get 50 percent off which is like crazy why am i doing that <laughs> it means i'm losing money but if you want a t-shirt for cheap that's how to do it and something to say for patreon as well like i've just upgraded all of oh <laughs> I say smacking the microphone. I've just upgraded all of my recording equipment um, and that's through the donations that I get through Patreon for things like this microphone. It ain't cheap. So uh, little donations like that really help to improve the show. So if that is something that you do want to do, then you know that you'll be giving money straight back into the show. So it's all really helpful. And I've also got two executive producers to shout out at the end of the show who are people that have signed up to the $10 tier on Patreon. So if you want to have your name read out at the end of the show, then you can sign up to be a $10 patron. Huge thank you to Barry and to Sam for helping support the show. You guys are the best. And also to all our other patrons as well. Okay, I think that's it. I'll let you go. Thank you for joining me for another macabre tale from London's past. I've been Nikki Druce and I'll see you next time. I have no nails again because it's lockdown.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.